0: Welcome to episode twenty-one of the Comedy Defect Podcast. My name's Winter Fonander. I'm a comedian and the host of this show. This is episode twenty-one with Daphne Barham. Daphne is a writer, a journalist, a comedian. She's been on circuit for seven years. She's done four fringe shows. She's been to Edinburgh, Hastings, the Camden Fringe, Brighton. She's done all of the fringes. She's a veteran. Of the fringes, she's very funny. She's so nice as well. Whenever I've met Daphne on the circuit, she's always been lovely to me. She's just she's such great company. I enjoy talking to her about comedy, the mistakes we make when we first start out, and the way maybe we continue to make until we build our arsenal of tricks that we can, you know, manage to steer our way out of or away from the wall. Sometimes, sometimes we can steer right into the wall and enjoy it. But hey, I really enjoy talking to her. You can enjoy this episode. But what's been happening with me? Well, I've been reconnecting with my family. My brother came over from Adelaide. He we, he brought his nephews. We had a laugh with those guys because they're just totally random. Kids are random. It's crazy. We went for a totally underwhelming Toby Carvery. They're charging for crackling now, an extra pound. But before we went in, the woman who was supposed to seat us, she said to us, Oh, sorry. We won't have any roast potatoes for at least thirty minutes. We were determined to have this meal. We were. We should just left. We're gonna have this meal. The, the kids didn't want it. One of the kids wanted fish. I say it's great to catch up with my, with my family and my brother. I haven't seen him for a bit, about ten years. Just nice to kind of. Catch up with these things, you know? Family, forget. you got so many things. People have such busy lives, you know? you got to catch up. But yeah, that was really nice. Um, we've got a lot more people joining the Facebook group. That's The Comedy Defect Podcast Facebook group. A lot of people joined that recently, which is great. You can find out when the episodes come out, or you can, like, comment on the episodes and which ones you like the best. Now, if you can like the page, the Comedy Defect page, if you want to follow the podcast, we're on Twitter. It's at The Comedy Defect if you want to follow me, it's at Winter Fonander. If you want to come see my live stand-up gig dates, you can go to my website, which is winterFonander.com. You can see my live stand-up gig dates there. Come see me live. I'll make you laugh. Now I haven't had a chance to do any more of the Guinness Jokes mission, because uh, I've been quite busy, because I haven't quite moved in fully with the wife yet, so I'm kind of kind of busy right now. But if you want to donate to this podcast, you can. you can go to Patreon, type in the Comedy Defect podcast. And donate as much or as little as you want. But if you can't kick something back to us, just leave us a nice review on iTunes or Podbean because it really helps. Now, this is episode 21. You're really going to like this. This is with Daphne Barham, writer, journalist, lawyer, comedian. Enjoy. Daphne Barham. Hello? Happy Yom Kippur. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for coming on The Comedy Defect. Is- yeah, I'm, it's my pleasure. And, and how are you? I'm good. I'm coming
1: out of a cold, but I'm, I'm mm. fine. It's a shit year for me.
0: Yeah, what, what, why was it shit year for you?
1: I lost my job in April, and I'm trying to make a living while... Right. Doing comedy?
0: Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm like, actually, what comedian calls, I've gone full time, mm. uh, which by which most comedians mean I'm on the dole, but I'm not, because <laughs> I'm not a citizen, so I can't be on the dole. Uh, so I'm just basically being skint. Right. And I'm mm. living uh, pretty much off comedy and off yeah. uh, freelance and off, uh, yeah. I don't even know if he wants to say this, but I've just said it, so you can do whatever you want yeah. with it. It's a bit of a tough year for mm. me. Yeah. I, admittedly. But...
0: Comedy's going well,
1: I'm, yeah. I'm doing interesting stuff, I'm doing great gigs.
0: Great. Uh, I'm enjoying it, yeah. And you've done about four shows now, is that right? You've done about four Yeah, uh, this the
1: current show is my fourth solo show, yeah it, yeah. it might undergo, I'm not quite sure whether it's coming up to Edinburgh in its exact same form, or maybe it will mm. get a new name. It will definitely be a new... I, I'm writing a lot of new material, but because the show by structure is a show of topical political jokes, mm. plus stories that support it which are about me and where I'm from or Mm. what I've done and stuff like that the the jokes themselves will change because they have to be topical and kind of fresh Mm. but yeah it might be called Something to Declare it might get a new name Mm. and not Something to Declare what is it called now shit my current show is called Begging to Differ Begging to Differ it'll probably still be Begging to Differ
0: so the four shows you had you had Miss Dean
1: I had Killing Miss Dean Killing Miss Dean which was I think not so much classic stand-up show but Mm. a one woman solo show type of thing Mm -hmm. Uh, where well, my alter ego, Miss D, was basically complaining about me mm-hmm. for an hour. She's quite full-on and predatorial and kind of rambunctious. She's the alter ego. She's, she's, I think she's what people would call the id, and I am the ego. So I, uh, I managed to separate myself from her for the purpose of the show. I was the good, conscientious Daphna, mm. who just wants to be a good journalist, and liberate Palestine, save mm. the world do good, find a decent boyfriend. Mm. She just wants to get pissed and have sex and (laughs) destroy my life. That was her mission. Mm. She was quite successful. And at the end of the show, we got into some kind of a uh, status quo Mm. where we decided that she will not be killed for now. Actually, I think the outcome, to an extent, was that she pretty much was uh, at least put on hold. She put
0: on hold. just like she's not massively around. She's taking a break a little she's, bit. Yeah? She's 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 is, is in exile. You won. You won. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I won. I'm not sure I'm that happy about it, but I seem to I seem to have won. So right. now I do my stuff. I do political comedy mm-hmm. and stuff about immigration and yeah. stuff about this country and stuff about my country, and she's waiting until I'm tired of all this shit and she can mm. come back and cause havoc
0: yeah so the first one was like first one was a very personal show and now this one is more of a how you think and how you perceive the world you try and to bring it in and your thoughts i on think it.
1: the last two shows are both of them all my shows are personal mm. uh they're never i don't think kind of um uh, commentatorial or indefinitely mm. they try very hard to not be preachy mm-hmm. and not have this kind of i'm right and the tories are cunts Mm. Not that I don't think that the joys are uh but it's um, <laughs> basically I'm attempting to do political comedy from a more personal perspective. Mm. Uh, a lot of time the bad of the joke is me, A lot of you know, and I'm trying to bring the comedy out there in the way that I experience it in the world. Mm. Because I think being an immigrant, I am uh, to a great extent subjected to the politics mm. and not just observe it. Uh, it has meaning for me. Brexit mm. has meaning, so mm-hmm. it could have practical implications uh, on my life. You know, things are happening in my world as a result of what is happening mm-hmm. in politics. Yeah, th- th- this is uh, this is something to declare... This is um, Begging to Differ, sorry. Mm-hmm. Something to declare was about the experience mm-hmm. of immigrating, mm-hmm. and it was based around Life in the UK yeah. Immigration Text, which I took last year. Yeah. So, yeah, so basically my comedy kind of follows what's happening to me. I think this year, probably, mm-hmm. to Begging to Differ, we will still be called that, will be added bits about the experience of not having a job and looking for work as an immigrant or not as an immigrant I'll have to see what happens in it's this broken. process but just looking for work I've not done this in years mm. and it's an interesting it's an interesting experience because
0: you're a journalist I, I am them. a
1: journalist, yes, but I mean, I, I trained as a lawyer, and I was a human rights lawyer in Israel for a few years. Mm-hmm. And then Which I knew, is where
0: you were born, isn't it?
1: Born uh, I was born in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. yeah, so I went to law school, uh, and then I was a lawyer for a while, mm-hmm. um, and I was working with this crazy, amazing human rights lawyer in Israel, a woman mm-hmm. called Lea Tzemel. Great, She was the first person, first Jewish lawyer. There were two of them, actually, and both of them were women, mm-hmm. her and a lady called Felicia Langer, who moved to Germany. Uh, years ago, and I think she died recently. But both Mm -hmm. of them were the only Israeli lawyers who represented Palestinians in military courts in the beginning of the occupation. I think they both started in '69. Mm. So when I joined her office, it was in the early 90s, and it was just, so basically we're dealing with cases of the first Palestinian uprising, the first Intifada, which started in 87. Mm -hmm. So in 91, when I joined, we were still already dealing with uh, cases of the late 80s. Mm. And so I've done that. After a while, I realized I don't want to be a lawyer. To my great shame, uh, the only bit that I was really enjoying was, except from that feeling that I was becoming a legend amongst my lefty friends. Mm. I was hoping that I was. I think the main thing that I enjoyed was performing in court. And it took me, what I hated was the need to hang on to a piece of paper for 20 years and being responsible for other people's life and liberty, Mm. which... I now understand more why I was so scared of it. So when you're 20, you don't think that this is scary. It it is scary. It is scary to, it's in your hands. I didn't want it to be in my hands. But I enjoyed the performance. And then I went into journalism, and I became a news editor in really, really hard and violent years in Israel, which is covers basically all years in Israel. <laughs> but mm. this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, the years of the second intifada, suicide bombings that we were, yeah. Israeli retaliations, bombing of villages and mm-hmm. towns. It was very gory. It was also a very scary time. I also mm. talked about this, I think I spoke about this, in Killing Misty and in the second show, yeah. uh, a.k.a. Misty, I was telling yeah. the story of the experience of being a journalist there.
0: So I saw your, I think, Killing Misty so you you did some, uh, you, you do army training as part of your schooling, is that right? Or no, no, no. Conscript- what you
1: do is you, normally what happens to Israelis, it's not a part of your schooling. Right. Uh, but basically the, the route for most Israelis, mm. especially secular Israelis, mm. is that you finish high school and mm. immediately you go into the army. Mm-hmm. It's, it's conscription, it's not your choice. Yeah. Girl, if your women go for two years, men go for three years, mm. it's a massive chunk of your teenage years mm-hmm. basically put into that. Uh, So when I was in my army job was to teach. So I was sent to a short teaching course and then I was teaching other soldiers, basically literacy, mathematics a little bit, Mm. English. And these people, there are different groups of soldiers that you could be assigned to teach. I was assigned to teach older soldiers. Mm. So these people were, my God, they were younger than I am now, but they were way older than I was then. So Mm. they were in their 30s, mostly early 40s. And they were soldiers who already you know, they worked for the army, basically. Mm-hmm. They were cooks or drivers, and, you know, and they were on a long contract with the army. Many cooks and drivers, some, you know, mm-hmm. kind of in charge of discipline, yeah. mechanics, people like that. And the army gave them the opportunity to complete 10 years of schooling. Mm. Many of them didn't even have a formal 8 years of schooling. Right. Because, you know, they were, many of them were immigrants or their parents immigrated mm-hmm. from the Middle East. Right. And they didn't get to go to school or they went to school but were taking out to support their families, you know, and work mm-hmm. or quite and a lot of them were dyslexic but undiagnosed. So yeah. uh, because at the time they were not looking for it, people just thought they were stupid or, you know, retarded, as they call them or lazy. Mm-hmm. And so they missed the opportunity for schooling in now. When they already were older, had children mostly, they get their second chance. So that Mm. was actually quite a good thing that Mm. the army did. I mean, considering that these were the early years of the first intifada and many of the people who went to school with me were just, you know, walking around the West Bank, beating people up, breaking people's legs, Mm. uh, which was the order from being the Prime Minister at the time, the uh, Minister of Defence at the time. I got to give people some education. So for me, I'm quite grateful for my uh, military service. I think it Mm -hmm. was something interesting. It was many times also moving, and I've done some good. So yeah, that's that, great. Yeah, that was for really good. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I think, my first experience at performance. Because teaching is performance. Yes, I mean, yeah. I think that's. that's crowd control as well, huh? There's quite crowd control, there's performance. The reason I chose to do that was that at the time when you teach younger soldiers, mm. people are conscripts, which is also a thing that you can choose mm-hmm. to do, the teaching involves also being their commander. So it's like, do your math, so I'm going to run you around the building and make you kind of do push-ups. Now, looking back at it, Miss D would have enjoyed it quite a lot. But at the time, I was quite a shy girl. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to work with people who wanted to study and who would feel grateful for the opportunity to do that. And these, these people, these career soldiers, were more it. Like, they were at an age where... I mean, when you're 40, you know what? it's important to be able to read and write. Mm -hmm. You know, or more like, you know what the punishments and the repercussions are if you don't. You know Mm -hmm. that you are walking around, being worried that your children would find out and look down at you. Mm -hmm. You don't really connect with your children, Mm -hmm. because all the time you're hiding behind a newspaper that Mm -hmm. you cannot really read, and you go, oh, go ask your mum that's got a headache. Mm, Of course. It was interesting to watch how within the course of the five-month or eight-month, depends of the course, these people were reconnecting with their kids. Fortunately, many times they were less connecting with their wives, There was a fine balance in these families where many times the women who were a little bit more educated were kind of... It means that you can control the funds, you can control control the relationship with the schools and all sorts of things were kind of turning around... So it was interesting as a very young person to watch that. I mean, I think only yeah. in retrospect they understand some of the things that they experienced. But yeah, it wasn't too bad. Experience.
0: Enabling, you're basically, they're, they're enabling their, their, their other half to be dyslexic and, and not as well educated because then he can control. So it's it's like, well, you're upsetting the whole balance of the family, right? It now. It is upsetting the balance they're, of the family. They've yeah. got way more options now. Uh oh, now they can do all their own things and, and realize what the hell's they going on. They can check why I'm spending mm. money. Oh, they can exactly. go and
1: speak to the teacher in the school. Mm they can talk to the kids I mean Mm. who manages the relationship with the children I think is a big thing in families and I don't know I don't have kids myself but I can imagine Mm. and from what I'm watching from you know parents who have friends and there is people don't like talking about it but Mm. there is a kind of a balance of power Mm. of Mm. who who can do that so it was a very interesting it was an interesting time
0: so all your family is still in Israel
1: yes Mm. Yes, I mean, I have my mother's there, my father and his new wife. His new wife has mm. been married to for 30 years now. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I have uh, a brother and two half-brothers, and I have nephews and a niece, yeah. yeah. So they're all there in Jerusalem.
0: It's like, maybe it's like that new act competition. It's like you could be a new act for 30 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <won> the newcomer award, <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> 30 years on the circuit, what? Yeah, um, I
1: was really worried because they invited me to their <laughs> silver wedding or something like
0: well, mm. five years ago.
1: What? Mm.
0: What do they do? do they, are they involved in, are they lawyers as well? Or what?
1: Uh, no, they're not lawyers at all. My, my father's a journalist. Mm. Um, uh, my mother was a civil servant. She worked for National Insurance. And my brother Giton, he's basically the deputy CEO uh, or chairman of a football team. Jerusalem is divided between supporters of Beitar Jerusalem, which is a right wing. Uh, quite a quite racist team with quite an international reputation mm. or, or infamy for being you know the racist they don't have Arabs in their team they have quite right. strong connections with racist violence in Jerusalem and our team uh, Paul Katamon Jerusalem which is a fan owned team mm-hmm. a bit like Barcelona that's where the similarity ends
0: though and <laughs> so, well we're yeah, quite no. new hey, wherever, you're, wherever you're from you're going to support that team I'm from there they're my team that's it you know? yeah are yeah, yeah. bad you to, to the death isn't it Those yeah things. but
1: you can decide one you support so mm-hmm. it's like we can decide if you support the racist or yeah, if you well, support the smallest this smaller. is true this yeah. is very true yeah, yeah, that, that's the decision yeah. that you make yeah. are you I mean, in many pa- places, this is a very political mm. thing. I mean, you'd know yeah. that you're Irish. Mm. I mean, it's, uh, it says everything about you, who you support and support yeah. and who you follow. Wow, that's interesting. Celtic and Rangers. Exactly, thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like sure, of course. And the thing with the cutting on Jerusalem is that they also have a vast array of uh, community work. So basically they have teams of children, Jews mm-hmm. and Arabs play with each other and mm-hmm. Ethiopian children and poor children and rich children. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of work in the community that way. They work with a lot of disabled people. They have mm-hmm. a lot of women's teams. So my, my whole family is involved with that. My brother, his wife, uh, my mum, my dad. It's like the, the, mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole family is somehow involved with that. which mm-hmm. is quite exciting. I mean, when they go there, the first thing that happens is they pick me up at the airport, they take me to the match. Great. Normally it happens on Friday. You know, I do volunteer, volunteer stuff. For them, I translate stuff into English. I'm trying to get people like donors, whatever.
0: It creates a massive sense of community. Like, which is what it is, it's like a tribe, isn't it, really? You're, 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 you follow your tribe. and hopefully, it is. You know, you, you choose wisely. It is, and it's very
1: hard in Jerusalem because I feel often so alienated because mm. of how different my politics is to what the mainstream is in mm. Israel in general and in Jerusalem, in particular Jerusalem, very right-wing, very religious. So, but it's still an enclave where there are people who still... Um, you know, believe in the same things, people who think there is hope for that city, which it's strange because I don't really feel that there is, but their optimism and their hope and the work that they put into these things is really catching. Mm -hmm. So I think my last visits there, I felt a little bit happier and more optimistic. My sense of resonance was somehow becoming stronger. Mm. You started comedy in what year? 2010, 2010. Uh, I started comedy. Um, it was almost a direct result of the fact that I had a heart attack in uh, June 29, 2009. I don't even know what how much to talk about this. Um, I was talking about this also in comedy. Uh, I think it was in AKA Misty as well. Mm-hmm. I thought I was actually going to talk more about this in comedy, but you never mm-hmm. know. Because when I when I got into it, I thought, okay, this is what this is going to be my Heart attack therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be talking about being, and also I thought after I had the heart attack especially as I had it two years after I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Mm. Uh, so all these were kind of really life-changing events, mm. and I thought that all my comedy was going to be about being a sicko. Mm-hmm. I really thought this was going to be... <laughs> and you know, because you've known me in comedy for a long time, this mm. has never been my main thing. No, not at all. I mean, even the five minutes that I was talking about the heart attack, I was actually talking about the kind of drugs that you can score in an ambulance. Mm. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like... But I really thought at the time... Welcome to your life as a mm-hmm. sicko. This mm-hmm. is what I thought. I just now I think back at it. This is mm-hmm. I realize that this is who I was. I thought, okay, this is a new uh, sort of way of being, and I'm going to I'm going to wear it well. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be that cool sick person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a cardiac condition, but it didn't really overtake my identity in any way. But I thought it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I had a heart attack, and then. Just around the same time I had the heart attack, I got to do two wedding speeches, one for my friend Yael mm. and her uh, new husband Peter, and the other one for uh, my friends Kit and Megan. And uh, so Yael's mm. wedding was just before the heart attack. Kit's wedding was just after. They were quite successful wedding speeches, and, mm. you know, people said they were funny and moving and stuff, mm. and I discovered that I was good at wedding speech. It was the first time, because in Israel you don't really do that. Mm. I, mean, I think now people do that a bit because they're influenced by American mm. films. Mm. But it's, there's no tradition of it. And we don't have maids, of honor and stuff like that. I was the L's maid of honor. I didn't know what was my job. I mean, I thought I probably am supposed to, you know, I thought you're supposed to sleep with the best man and have the speech. <laughs> best man was gay. The speech. <laughs> so I just had to do the speech. I also thought your L was going to get my dress for me. It's going to be some yeah. disgusting color like peach. Yeah. Uh, and then it turned out that I need to get my own dress and I can wear whatever I want. Mm-hmm. So all this it was kind of a combination of good news and bad news. Mm-hmm. So I did that speech and then I went and had a heart attack mm-hmm. at the gym. It was honestly like three or four days later. I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. to have a heart attack. I was super fit at the time. I was going to the gym six times a week. No, cause I would have, uh, 10 years earlier, mm-hmm. totally earned it. Like exactly. I was sitting in an office in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. smoking 90 cigarettes a day No, not 90, sorry, 70 Things were exploding mm. Like, ooh Like, I hate the word literally But they were fucking exploding literally yeah. under my window right. And all the time bleepers were going off Do you remember bleepers? Yeah Bleepers were going off And people mm. were running, like, in the movies And yeah. were like, ah, oh, another one And sometimes you had three a day And you just Whoa. feel it was personally against you mm. And stuff like that and, I, and then I was, like, smoking all these cigarettes And I was about... 30 kilo overweight. So I was way more overweight than I am now. And God knows that's sufficiently overweight. It was a massive amount of stress. Mm. Uh, Both at work, but also just even when work was over and Mm. you're going to go home, you didn't know if you were going to get there. It was just, that's when I should have had a fucking heart attack. Mm. Not when I was like at the gym in Haringey (laughs) wearing a Lara Croft outfit, (laughs) like really skinny. I I had abs and I was like the healthiest that I've ever been in my life. But I had a clot in my heart because when you smoke, the clot just sits there and waits for an opportune moment to burst. And that's the moment that it chose. So then, you know, they got me in the ambulance and I used to tell this joke. It wasn't even a joke. Sometimes you think the great thing about living a long life with a lot of shit happening in it Mm. is that you don't need to make shit up. So Mm -hmm. I was in this ambulance and they were asking me if I was in pain and I wasn't. But I said that it was in pain just to so that it would give me some drugs, mm. and that's a weird thing because when you're in the ambulance, you still think I might not end this journey, mm. and still you think. Maybe I can score some morphine. Mm-hmm. That means you'll
0: probably live. I yeah. mean, like, what kind of person? <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, you're still thinking about the future, aren't you? Yeah. You're still like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'm, I'm just wanting to know where my next fix is going to come. But from. also, if I'm not
1: going to be okay, I might yeah. as well go with a bang yeah. rather
0: than just. It's better to die with the drugs
1: and without yeah. the drugs. If For you're sure. dying, you're dying. If you're not dying, you're not dying. Yeah,
0: yeah. It was in perpetuity. But then,
1: yeah, <laughs> and it was quite. You know, you were in a great mood. I, mean, I don't know why I say you. I was in a great mood mm. while I was having the heart attack. And I think it was a rewarding event to everybody involved, like the team in the ambulance, they were laughing, the doctors were laughing, everybody was laughing, I was cracking jokes all the time, Mm-mm. which, is, in retrospect, it's, I mean, I guess adrenaline kicks in mm. and something comes out of you, and you think, I'm funny.
0: It's, it's life or death, though, isn't it? It and, is. And I mean, well, that's obvious, I know, but it's like, you're like, well, hey, look. I might as well enjoy this moment. I can yeah. die in this any second. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think it is this adrenaline thing. Yeah. And also I was in protest. I really thought this was unfair. I was not yeah. supposed to have a heart attack. I was way too fit to have a heart attack.
0: <laughs> you've not earned this heart attack you, you, not you've not earned you all this all this fitness and then you're like oh well, well how am I get? where's my reward yeah that's yeah, nothing
1: I didn't get yeah. nothing it was mm. just terrible so you have all this kind of cheerfulness but then you wake up in the hospital the next mm. day and that's what it hits you For somebody kind of then you're kind of in pain because they put a tube through your groin and it's like oh, oh, yeah. and, and they don't let you get out of bed it's just mm. some sort of you feel miserable and also you see who you're surrounded by because mm. you might be 39 and looking to Heart and, and, you know, you just kind of think, oh, this is incidental. Mm. But then everybody around you is kind of moaning and groaning and you like, kind of, oh,
0: God, mm. it's just not...
1: Intensive care is a place where you don't really want to be.
0: It's not glamorous, is it? It's not glamorous. It's very not glamorous, <laughs>
1: especially the heart, the chest hospital in Bethnal Green. I mean, like, there was this old man with all these women around him. They kept bringing... They were actually bringing him food, which I'm sure was going to kill him the mm. second time. And there was this lady was my age but from my head she was older because she was like she mm. had kids teenage kids mm. they were a really nice family then this nurse came to talk to her and she said to her my love don't eat that mm. uh, she said a pork pie is a heart attack waiting to happen mm. which immediately i called kit who was getting married next and i said to him because his wedding cake was uh, constructed of pork pies it was in Yorkshire. They had right. the best pork pies ever. So they yeah. just had these little pork pies and they constructed wow. them into a wedding. I didn't even have one at that wedding. I was that brave. Yeah. So then I was out of the hospital and Kit was like, okay, you're doing my, marriage, my wedding speech. Because yeah. he's heard yeah, L's wedding speech and he thought it was good. So he wanted that.
0: Sorry, with the first one you did, did the best man have to do a speech to follow you?
1: yes. Oh, or maybe so, it was before me. I can't remember. So
0: you you uh, you made it very difficult to, for him to to follow. I'm you? not <laughs> slagging him off.
1: I'm not slagging him off. Uh, but I think it's not that my speech was so great, but my dress was really beautiful. Okay. It's part of the package. It's
0: part of the package. It's right? part of
1: the package. I mean, I really, it was funny. People were laughing. I enjoyed that. I like doing wedding speeches. Well, for friends, I don't think it would necessarily enjoy. You know, there's people who do this for work. They coach people who write. Mm. I, I can do that. But I think the really special thing about it is if it's a close friend and mm. you really love them mm, mm. and you really went through stuff with them. And I think in, in the case of both these friends, they were people who, you know, I've seen them through mm. thick and thin and yeah. illnesses and mm. heartbreaks yeah. and both mine and theirs. They're they real came, special.
0: They're, real special they're, they're special.
1: So, like, yeah. you can, this means that you can be moving. Mm. And you can be funny and you know, you don't need to do this thing that I know that kind of traditionally people are supposed to do, which is kind of you know, just kind of tell tales of indiscretion mm. that really don't interest anybody but I like kind of kind of made you to embarrass them. Mm. Whereas if you really love them and care, then you can just have yeah. better stuff. Yeah, it comes from the heart. That's yeah. what, speaking
0: speaking from the heart. It's well, I
1: quite like that. It's nice. I'm kind of I'm up for it. That's basically. great. That's so you
0: got rebooked for the other friend.
1: Yes, I got rebooked. <laughs> there was a the second gig <laughs> coming. <laughs> the funny thing about the second friend's... about Kit's wedding was that I got there. It's a beautiful. It was a posh wedding. It was proper. Like it was hmm. on this, the church was really old it was on the top of the hill of the dales, yeah. and really nice priest. I love English weddings. I mm. mean, they're just the best. And so he uh, had two friends in charge to look after me. So basically these two guys told that their main job was just to keep pouring champagne into me before I was sort of doing my speech. And they were just competing mm. who was going to get me more drunk before mm. it was speech time. And I was, as I got up, Eric, I stumbled a little bit. And the groom's mum said, I heard her. She said, darling... Are you sure about that? Because that is a weird thing in a posh wedding that mm. some girl from Israel, who nobody really knows, would just come and do the speech instead of somebody like me. Mm. But it was a good one. It was a good one. Mm. And then Chris Morris—that was bad. Like I didn't know that he was Chris Morris. I didn't even if I would have known, I wouldn't have known who Chris mm. Morris is. But he came to me and he said that was a very good speech. And then he went to Kit and he said, "Who's that woman who did the speech? Who is her agent?" So that Kit got it into his head that they need to get me a stand-up comedy course mm. for my 40th birthday, which was coming. Yeah. And I was—I didn't have it in me to even say no. It's terrible. You just wake up there after you had the heart attack and you think, shit, this is it. First of all, I'm going to die soon. And second, uh, I'm never going to have sex again, ever. This is what the, oh this is God. the two things I was thinking in the ambulance. Yeah. Once no. I've established that I was not going to die immediately, mm. I, I was like, <gasps> yeah. uh, and also I, I spurred one thought to the idea that I probably am not going to have any children, mm. um, which I was not too fussed about. But then I was like, hang mm. on a minute. Who's gonna have sex with somebody who just had a heart attack? Probably nobody. Not true. Men are adventurers. This is when I found out.
0: <laughs> I, I honestly thought men no, are no, you're cowards. Come on. Admit no,
1: it. no, I mean look, do you know what,
0: right? If a woman's if a woman is gonna have a heart attack. I'd rather you know. I, I don't want to kill anyone, but it would be one to say like, "Well, like you know, I'm sorry that what happened to your last relationship." Well, I killed her. How having sex with her? That is something a notch on the bedpost. That's one of those notches. There
1: is a comedian, uh, Scottish guy. Yeah. Let me remember. He does. He actually came. He mm. came to Miss but, Silverhammer which was my gig. Mm. He gave a woman a heart attack. Wow. Well, it didn't even gave it to her, but she had it. Um, yeah, that yeah. was the story which I thought was hilarious. But yeah, that was my the joke that I was doing. I mm. was like, you know, so what do you do if her whole body stiffens and her eyes widen and she's really, mm-hmm. really heavy? Do you fuck off and go an ambulance? Or you do you keep doing what you're doing because
0: you're clearly yeah. doing something good there? That's <laughs> yes, exactly Keep going. <laughs> yeah, just, don't right.
1: start.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, need, you need like a diver signal, don't you? <laughs>
1: you need, yeah, if you're dead. It's like a safe word. Just tell me yeah. if it's a real one. Like, I guess it. that's what you need. Just a, thumb, your... a thumb up. Uh, well, we might not be able to maybe might be better if you can just kind of go oh, have, um, Theresa May or something put it. <laughs> It's an idea for urge moment um, <laughs> yeah. So th- all this was happening during the summer mm. It's a brilliant summer All my friends are getting married I'm having a heart attack putting justice all over the place mm. And then I did, did the comedy course That they bought me for my birthday So there were about, I think, maybe 20 people involved in this mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people to blame Like if I think sometimes Kate looks at my comedy and thinks, Okay, I need to blame somebody else. Mm. It's good that they have twenty partners and that so I went to the comedy course at the comedy school in mm. Camden. This course it's so bad. I mean you know, like all the courses, it gives you some kind of an idea what it is about. Like, you know, I've learned that comedians don't make the shit they say up as they go along. Mm. I've learned that there is such a thing as a set mm. and that it's written. It's okay that it's written. That's not cheating. Mm-hmm. And that people repeat it many times mm. over and over again. I've learned that I'm not the only person to start comedy without knowing shit about comedy or mm. without having a favorite comedian mm. or without... Uh, I mean, my friend Vishai who was also a part of the scheme, on the week before I started the comedy school, which was... Uh, it was on a Thursday. I mean, it was on Thursday. The Thursday before that, he took me to downstairs with The King's Head mm. Because he said that it was a complete disgrace, I've never even been to an open mic and I'm mm-hmm. going to start a stand-up comedy course at mm-hmm. least you know get an idea of what it's like. Mm-hmm. I remember that I thought it was not I mean I love of the king's head the th- mm-hmm. th- Thursdays are great. this was not the best one, and I was thinking, yeah, I can do that mm-hmm. and then about seven months later when I was dying on my ass downstairs at the King's Head three months into comedy in front of 12 friends who came to see me and another 50 people who were there Mm. yeah it took me a long time to dare come back I remember two years before I dared Mm. ask for another spot there Yes, I went to the company school. It was an interesting experience. I was, you know, being a journalist, I looked at everything anthropologically.
0: Which is great, which is great. You've already got that writing experience behind you, so you don't really it's need...
1: good and bad, right. because if you're a writer, you mm. know, so I was already a published author, and I was writing for newspapers regularly, for English you think you're great mm. uh, and it means the dangerous thing about it is that you think you know how to write you don't know how to write jokes because writing jokes and writing articles have absolutely nothing in common mm. it actually gives you more background if you say are a mathematician mm-hmm. or some kind of a scientist because this is what <laughs> jokes are it's true <laughs> though it's true.
0: you go too far into it because a, a journalist would be like oh these are the facts this is the thing that we first about. of all
1: journalists are kind mm. of uh, sticking to the facts mm. writers are way too wordy a joke is a technical thing Mm. it has a certain balance it needs to be very succinct in terms of wording you need to have a hard consonant at the end of it especially if you have an accent otherwise nobody knows what the fuck you're saying Mm. Uh, you need to be frugal with words and i can't say that enough you need to shave the fat off and i'm i'm a floral writer i I like Mm. words i like descriptions i like things I, mean, she's right. I remember that six months in, I was at the Cavendish Arms, I can't remember if it was some kind of a competition or something, Lenny Sherman said to me, Duff, you have the best stage presence in the whole world, you can't write for shit. Right. I was furious! Oh, I was absolutely livid, and you know what, I remember it to this day, I've been a comedian for almost seven years no. now, he was right, but I couldn't hear it, and I've been told that more gently by other people... Oh. And I couldn't understand that there was a problem with the way that I was writing comedy until mm. it was about three years in. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you you have a very strong bl- mm. blind side that normally has to do, actually, with your strong side. Mm. I'm, I was, at the time at least, it kind of turned around now. I was, at the time, a better performer than I was a writer. Mm. Because I was not watching stand-up comedy, and because I was... And also, I have a thing... I don't like saying it because it's like kind of controversial. Uh, In a way, and and, and I don't mind saying controversial thing, but this one is controversial uh, against my own grain. But Mm. I really do think that, I wouldn't say all women, but I think a lot of women resent the idea of having to learn to write jokes technically. We want to be funny. We also have a tendency to be storytellers and to be entertaining Mm. in our own way. Men have no problem with it. This Mm. is why the people that you see posting one-liners all the time Mm. on Twitter are Mm. men. They have this thing. It's a game. They play it as a team. And you can see how they do it. So you can see that, you know, Darren would put one and Lenny would put one. And, and everybody would kind of do this thing and it would be like a game. Whereas women, I don't know, we seem to operate in a different way. And also, because we are a new presence in comedy, it's changing. It's changing a lot. But we don't really have we have very few role models mm-hmm. and we have very few... We did not have an idea. For example, I didn't know what a comedian dress is like. The only sort of image that I had in mind was Alan DeGeneres. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I need to kind of do lesbian chic. I, I need to
0: just... <laughs> so I was, <laughs> really. I
1: was... just kind to of wearing jeans and this kind of cropped t-shirt. Yeah. I would think, And then I remember that it was still during the comedy course mm-hmm. and then one day I wore a dress mm-hmm. and it came in and people were like, Wow. This is, like, different. Mm. And I remember Dane Baptiste said to me, wow, did you go on a date? And I was like, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. And he was like, well, I don't know, just keep doing that. So I started wearing dresses mm. all that. It became a thing. People were kind of, like, looking forward to mm. see what I'm going to wear. I ca- I, I, so I came into comedy. It was super flamboyant. I was mm. wearing corsets and all sorts mm. of things. It gradually... The weird thing is that it's changed, but also my age changed. I still dress up, mm. but... Um, and it became my thing a little bit. Mm. It's hard to know. And it's the same with style and with writing and with everything. You just don't really know what kind of comedian you want Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And you start following different... I I think, I somehow feel that men are more likely to write wine-liners and puns. Men love puns. Mm -hmm. Women... There are some. I mean, Saskia Preston is a great one liner comedian. There are a few, but they always kind of belong to the more kind of geeky side of, mm. of comedy. Yeah, so I think it takes time before, I think for women, a, we before we take ourselves seriously enough to think, what I don't know how to do, I need to invest in learning how to mm. do mm. Uh, I can put money into it, I can put time into it. It's legitimate. Mm. It's not, I th- you know, it's, Men, a lot of men are in comedy and they're thinking, I'm going to reach the top, I'm going to be Michael McIntyre. Women kind of think, yeah, just do it for a while. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's my little knitting course and it takes time. I mean, and before you get like properly competitive, you Mm. want to be the best, you can Mm. admit it to yourself, you Mm. want to be good, you want to be booked to clubs,
0: you want to... Mm. You want to
1: win at comedy. Mm. I don't know why.
0: It took me a lot of time to admit that. Mm. I mean, winning at comedy is like it's a bit. It, you know, you it, it's sort of different for everybody. You know, like or it is. Su- being successful at, at anything is, is diff- different. different for everyone. You, we've all got limits. We all like to think that it's all level level playing field. No matter if male male or female, gay yeah. straight, whatever it doesn't matter. We've all got limits. Yeah. And we can only be the best that we can be like, or, or sorry, as an I can be for myself, I can only be the best that I can possibly be. And in, in the more I, I get to know myself, I'll know my limitations, hopefully push beyond them as far as I can go. But it's like, you still are confined to whatever you are, you know, yeah. I mean, but, but the more you go through comedy, you know, you know who you are better, which is great, because then you can then you can build on that or fix that. You know who you are better
1: and you also are able to identify different routes that you can Mm. go. Mm. So when they say I want to win at comedy, I don't mean that I want to be making time. Or I don't mean (laughs) that I want to be anybody in specific. Mm. Um, I don't even want to be a household name Mm. necessarily. I want to have a following. Mm. I want to have people who like my comedy and would come back to see me and are interested in what I do. Mm. Uh, By the nature of the stuff that I do... It is not, it doesn't have a mass appeal necessarily, but Mm. it has an appeal. uh, And you learn to, I think one of the most important ideas in comedy was this thing that Stuart Lee uh, was saying in his book about finding your audience. A lot of people talk about this. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time because like in your first two, three, four years, you don't find your audience. You find what there is in the open mic nights that you do and this is where they are. And you go to places and you're often surprised, especially if you are not from England. So like you learn mm-hmm. that there are some places around London where everybody's white mm-hmm. and nobody's ever seen a Jew, mm-hmm. uh, and which is weird because you hardly even identify as one. And mm-hmm. uh, you find that you have to represent it. You find that... There are places where female comedians did a weird thing, mm. where an older woman who uh, who just left her house in the evening is a weird mm. thing. I mean, all sorts of things. But you also find that there are places where you go in and you think, oh, no, this is not my audience. Um, mm. It's going to be exactly your audience, mm. and you just don't know it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm going to Lincolnshire, uh, to John Elston gigs. I think it's called um, The Food Who Stands Out. Yep. And they walked in, and they looked at the audience, and they said to him... <gasps> The Tories, aren't they? And he said that this is actually an old Labour constituency, mm. but I know what you mean. They look like they just came from the golf club. Mm-hmm. And I had a great gig there. Then again it was at oh, Brookman's Park, Santa's Gig?
0: Yes, yes, yes. I literally
1: escaped from that gig. Oh, wow. For my I, I ran away. They hated me because they told a joke about Prince Philip. The response of the room to you is not always a result of them being Geographically hostile to mm-hmm. you or to your politics. I mean, yesterday yeah. I did a game and there were a few people sitting at the front. I have this whole Brexit set that you've seen this week. Yes, yes, yeah, great. I just popped into uh, cafe mode. I think Sonia Astor was supposed to do a 10 minutes there and she was sick and she asked if I can just come and do it. She so mm. came, open and ran. But I came in, people came in late and they sat at the front and they were from um, Lancashire, Burnsley, I think. Yeah. And then there was another couple from Kent. Right. And I said something about Brexit, Brexit, and all these four people were kind of going, "Yeah, we're for Brexit." And it was okay, but it was a friendly encounter. Mm-hmm. So I was—I mm-hmm. kept referring to them through the rest of my set as these people who supported Brexit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a kind of a friendly exchange of, "Yeah, you don't really want me here, but you love me now." Yeah. Um, and so it—you know—you can play what you learn over time is also to sometimes play the hostility. You know, not every discrepancy is hostility. This mm-hmm. is what I mean. Sometimes, though, you walk into a disaster. It happens. Mm-hmm. But, and, you know, and you learn with time where you like and where you don't like. But mm-hmm. also you learn how to change a room that initially doesn't like you to a room that does or that does acknowledge mm-hmm. its own prejudice. All these things that you learn. This is why mm-hmm. it's so interesting. This is why comedy is the most interesting thing I've ever mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Like, you walk in there and this is it. It's you and it's them. And you learn to know them. And you, they learn to know you. And all this is happening in within... 10 to 20 minutes Mm. A relationship is created In the room Mm. You get to talk about Things that are interesting For you You get to talk about Things that rub them The right way Mm. Or the wrong way You get to feel A lot of solidarity In rooms that You know People that are not necessarily One of my favourite Places to perform Probably my (coughs) favourite Place in the UK To perform is Glasgow Mm. Oh my god I mean, it's my favorite. and you would think, considering that if I need to think who my audience, it normally I would say women, immigrants, particularly you know good in, in rooms to a lot of Muslim people, a lot of Black people, uh, Jewish people, any minority people, any immigrants, Europeans. Glasgow is not; it's a white city. Mm, mm. It's not massively known for its massive gay scene. Mm. Gay people are also like a big; I mean, they're a great audience for women generally. But you've
0: always been—you've always been a very warm, high-energy, and, and powerful performer. Is it? But since I've known you, is that come from your experience as a writer, or but this from, from being a lawyer? Do you think that's helped you in your delivery and all that?
1: Okay, some of it is cultural. I mean, mm, I'm okay. I'm an Israeli, mm. and it's a little bit like what we're like. Right. We're touchy feely. We're in your face. We're yeah. quite loud. Mm. And we're not the most polite. Mm. Going to make comments about everything basically whether it's appropriate or not and we're warm we will we, we'll kill you warmly and we'll hug you warmly everything is going to be and you know I, was, lovely. I used to tell this joke when i started the company. that i think i was doing it in actually in something to declare which was about immigration that mm. first time that an english person said to me that i'm very forward i thought it was some kind of a compliment mm. because in hebrew this parallel word would mean You're open, you're... Being direct is a good thing. Mm. Well, it's not the way it's used in British English. People say that to you, and they don't necessarily mean to say, oh, you're great. Mm -hmm. They just mean, "Count the fuck down, dear. So I think that... But I think my performance has changed a lot, and the way that it has changed is that there was a combination of aggression and warmth, mm. warmth, and the and aggression went down and the warmth went mm. up. And that was, that was where the wall came off. Because mm. my wall was, I think, in the first three years, first of all, I was dressed extremely sexy, which was like a wall in itself. Sometimes mm. it's not just putting clothes on that mm. puts a wall, but also taking clothes off that puts a wall. Mm. The other thing was that I had this aggression that was not... Is that really a part of who I am? Mm. I think my character on stage was too different to mm. who I actually am. Yeah. Uh, and it was very difficult for me. I mean, and I think this is the struggle in comedy, the real struggle in comedy. What we're all trying to be at the end is, and it could take years, mm. uh, the growing up of a comedian is becoming funny on stage in a similar way as possible to the way that you're funny mm-hmm. around a dinner table. The further you are from that, the mm. more you still have way to go. Yes. And I think my beginning, I was like, "Well, I'm trying to kill. I'm going to kill you." Yeah. And I was this kind of dominatrixy person. Mm. I don't know how to take this back, <laughs> but I'm not a dominatrixy person. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a walkover, and yeah. I'm not massively submissive, but I really am not that aggressive mm. or or that domineering. Mm. I am, um, you know, I think in uh, something to be clear, my my third show, I probably found the best definition for myself, which mm. really is what I am, whether mm. I like it or not. I am a Middle Eastern Mary Poppins mm. with a semi-automatic umbrella and a spoonful of hummus. This is why I am. And, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter if what I like to be is some reincarnated Marilyn Monroe. What I am is this, and you know, I'm 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 warm. I'm a feeder. I'm like, oh, come here, I'll make you soup. I'm uh, I'm Jewish in ways that I was not aware of. Yeah, and I'm a little bit middle-aged, which is. Shit, but it's mm. the truth And quite nice actually mm. Which was A shocking thing To have to acknowledge I mm. mean it is It's a problem for me in life But I thought How it's, could a comedian be nice That's disgusting It's the,
0: Like because when you first start You're afraid You go up there Oh I hope this works I really You don't want to die You, but you, you need just, to fend them it, off Yeah and you're, you're, and you're like And so that fear Causes aggression We've talked about this before But we, we You know We yeah. spoke I about think it. you had a bit of we, that yeah, yeah So I had the same thing yeah. And I was like I was really I was on the edge of You were aggression. angry Yeah I was angry But I, was, I wasn't sure Why I was angry You know so, and there's also. But, it's so not you yeah. that it is, yeah. That's and it. then
1: you just suddenly you let this go, and you're. And but the thing with me mm. is that unlike you, I was kind of going around all the time, for frustrated. I, I was mm. going and scaring them, mm. and then I was like, "Why is my audience scared me? That's not fair." Mm. And people were like, "I mean, you know, the people." It's thing in comedy is that you need to find these people who would tell you the truth on one hand, but not offend you on the other yeah. hand, which is very hard. But mm. you, you kind of come to have these mm. confidence or these mm. people who take permission before they and be more like well stop scaring them maybe they will not be scared why are you shouting in them and then you're surprised they're scared you're like i'm gonna kill you and then yeah. you're like oh they run away they're
0: trying to fight trying to control the fire rather it's a, a bit like that. this you know I was a bear walking around knocking yeah. things like oh no <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I, I had to not be afraid to just be me mm. sometimes it's a crass thing to say almost and it sounds idiotic to people who didn't try to do this and you so many times see that like people go a whole circle and come mm. back to being themselves and I think, yeah. why couldn't they've just done this from the beginning but you
0: can't the it's character.
1: scary you're standing there it's mm-hmm. an open mic. people are like oh my god what are they going to mm-hmm. do to me mm-hmm. too much think about the defences that you need to build whereas it didn't you didn't need to build defences first of all try to make friends with them because yeah. I think the most important thing that I've learned in the comedy school was in the first meeting that we had somebody had to leave the room it was Dane Baptiste actually right. he had to come back into the room and find out what it is that we want him to do mm-hmm. and we decided that he needs to whatever go yeah. and touch the door the
0: dolphin game I think it's, I did. Yeah, and they clap. You clap. You you clap. clap. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. You clap and you cheer. If he's getting close to where he needs to be, you clap and cheer. And yeah. if he's getting far away, you boo it. Mm, mm. And I was watching, and then Dan was kind of reporting what it felt like. And basically, the conclusion of all this thing is mm. that the audience wants you to do well. That was a shock to everybody mm. in the room and to me particularly. Like, especially because they didn't watch that much stand-up comedy, but I think people come into comedy thinking, oh, the audience is the enemy. Mm. You come for war. So it's true. <laughs> totally.
0: It's true for Americans. Totally. I always thought totally. that. Totally. I always thought that. But probably because we were watching quite a lot of American uh, stand-up. because know, just to my fear, I think. It's like, no, yeah. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And then it was like, no, we're all going to win. But also you
1: you know, you see people like CK come on stage and kind of be, yeah, well, I call the shots here, I do the stuff here, I'm the room. And the whole way that they square up to mm-hmm. an audience is like, you think, okay, they're coming for war, there's mm-hmm. going to be war. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it's also an audience that thinks that their job is to heckle. Mm-hmm. British people don't heckle. Mm-hmm. And even when they heckle, it's hardly ever quite heckle. When they heckle, it means they're drunk. Mm-hmm. And when they're drunk, they're just slaring. It's not that they're going to say something that's going to knock you off your feet. But mm-hmm. the worst thing that could happen is that they're going to go, I am, now." Well, oh, you killed Jesus, which is, uh, I had that one. <laughs> oh, uh, but, yeah, that was quite a tough one. But you know what? That was my, I think every act has the you know, defining moment where you had that hackle and like, you raised up you <laughs> suddenly realised yeah and you just kind of went you know I just I had it I dealt with it well because I Great. had a joke for it what, uh, what was it what was it oh it was like this okay so here was a Czech guy and he was together with a Scottish guy that came to my show in Edinburgh the show that I was doing with Pave and Kossandi, the uh, Iranian Israeli mm. show and he he started he was drunk I could see that he was drunk but I got him into the room for the same reason that a lot of comedians in Edinburgh get people into the room because you want to fill the room also it was kind of hot so I, I brought them in and they sat at the front row so I'm talking for about 10 minutes, and I think that was the time that took him through the massive fog that was sort of around mm. his head to realize that really important information here from everything that I was saying mm. is that I am a Jew. <laughs> right. And then he just started waving his arm at me, and he were like, you, Jesus, and I was like, ugh. And I said, how dare you? Mm. You're a cunt. why so I said that and I was like, yeah. Because then they realized I can do that. That's the mm. moment when you think, ah, oh, the audience is on my mm. side. That's it. Uh, there were a lot of people from the Palestine Solidarity campaign and also they already kind of got onto my politics. They were like, okay, we're supporting her. Mm. And also didn't like people don't like when somebody's drunk and slurry mm-hmm. and kind of heckling in a show. Mm-hmm. Unless the comedian pieces them off first. Yeah, of course. So I said, you know that this is not real. this is actually the most terrible thing that you can say to a woman of a certain age. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a spring chicken, but I didn't kill Jesus Christ a years ago, how dare you? Mm-hmm. And then I had the joke that the Jews they said that the Jews sold Jesus to the Romans mm-hmm. and this is obviously a lie. Mm-hmm. They sold Jesus to the Romans for thirty shekels. I mean if you check the currency exchange, you'd see Mm. that this is not even a fiver. Mm. You show me a Jew that would send a hippie, uh, would sell a hippie to the Italians for a fiver, and I will show you an uncircumcised Jew. And I was (laughs) shouting all this stuff at him. And then he just... Got up and left, and then I said, "Oh no!" I dragged him in here, and I thought, "Oh my God, his heart is cold," and I've spent the last five minutes thinking, "Where am I going to hide his body?" <laughs> so it, was, it all kind of went well, and then you yeah. suddenly realized that you can think on your feet—that yeah. you don't need to prepare for it. I mean, a lot of people come into comedy calls or come into whatever, and they're like, "Oh, you need a good heckle, put down, you need a good heckle, put down." The truth is that your heckle put down is going to come to you. Mm, mm. You didn't need it that, that much because not so many people heckle. Yeah. A lot of the people that heckle don't even understand what you say to them. Mm. So, I mean, you know, and the, the best way is to. Use
0: the
1: sometimes you also need the promoter or somebody to just get them the hell mm, out of there. Of I mean, I had uh, Mark Dolan at Miss D. Bahama once doing a preview. Yeah. There was these two women, they were older, and they were having their third bottle of wine. And they were just chatting to each other and they were hacking. They just didn't give a shit what was happening mm. in the room. In the end, I just went there and I asked them to leave and they wouldn't leave and I got the guy from downstairs Ozzy Bauman, who was very yeah. kind of like oh what am I going to do and then in the end I was last I suddenly had that inspired idea and I was sort of signaling to him to take the glasses and I took the bottle and we just walked downstairs and just followed the wine and they never came back Yeah, uh, but you know sometimes you just need to, to kind of do something quickly mm, mm. but I think Many people are focused on that, but it's not really the main thing. Mm-hmm. The main thing is to make the room friendly to you, mm-hmm. to make the room like you. What one of the ways to do this, if you're a likable person, mm-hmm. there's absolutely no reason why you should neutralize everything about you that totally. is likable yeah, totally. and just be a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> why are they going to like you if you're gonna yeah. do this? Because they're gonna walk all over <laughs> me. That's And what I it just is. I know, but anyway, <laughs> I so- See,
0: they'll see the smiling face and they're gonna just take me out. But why? I mean I you know, I saw you this week. I mean no, we both saw each
1: other this week, which is yeah. why it's quite useful. And I was yeah. thinking, yeah. 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 This is nice Irish guy. I mean, what was he? And like the whole Demur was like, yeah, I'm happy. go lucky. I'm nice. I mean, it's not like there is also anything about you that they would not like instinctively. I mean, you know, you're you're of a good age. You're not too young to to be annoying. You're not old. Uh, You're good looking. You're nice. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, I'm like, I look like your nice auntie. I mean, why wouldn't they like
0: Thanks, me? I are mean, always welcome. <laughs> um, I, mean, I wish
1: they could say this about me.
0: I just look, but, go home. Like for me, it was I thought that everything there was nothing interesting about me. That's what I thought. I, I I'd even talk about my name for a very long time. It was weird. And like, no, it's like, a and great I wouldn't talk name. about it, and I wouldn't talk because I was like, no, it's boring. I, I don't like it. And, I, and then when I went full time as well, I did 20 minutes on my name. Right. And then, then I was like, I've got that out of my system. I was like, oh no, there is funny stuff in here, but I've I mined everything on it now. I felt really, and how I actually felt about it, because the reason why I didn't talk about it, because I didn't like it. And so you come to that moment of, like, yeah, you know what, it's fine. And they don't have to like me now, because for some reason I'm, I've worked that kink out of my, my brain. Yeah, you know, that, That's the same thing, but for time this year, I have, I've come to that epiphany, if you like, of going, oh, I know who I am now. And I, yeah. and I got married and that's okay and I don't need their approval. So it's fine. I'm going to really enjoy this moment because I love this so much. I'm passionate about this. You're not going to take it away from me. I'm still going to be happy walking away from this even if you don't like me. Yeah. you know, And that is the, the, the joy of it now for me. It's like, you know, we talk about like you have a joke or a new bit and you get to that bit. And you just you, you make it you, you make it to that bit sometimes because it's a really awkward room. And yeah. you're and you're you're trudging through and you get to that bit like I'm finally at this bit which is new and I love <laughs> it. Here we go, guys.
1: This yeah. is it.
0: You're gonna love it. And I love it. And they and they all of a sudden go, Oh yeah, great! And then you're yeah, 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 the yeah, yeah, Oh yeah, yeah, brilliant! Yeah. This is it, and they're feeling the love that you're having for that, and then you you're parroting that to them, and that is why we do it. We've got that yeah. new bit that that just sheer joy in that moment and you bring them with you with that joy because they don't even have to be there anymore. But if they are, then they are with it. It's great
1: yeah. because they're with you in that and all of you are oh, doing this thing. Yes. And if they're not, it's less great. Mm. I mean, it's basically, it's like a date really, mm-hmm. isn't it? I yeah. mean, it's like sometimes you're like there or you're having dinner, or you're yeah. talking, you're like, whatever, yeah. you're thinking, oh, I'm going to have sex with them later, <laughs> and, and then <laughs> and sometimes you're like, okay, I'm just going to keep sitting here and smiling and I'm I'm just going to keep talking because what else am I going to do? And fuck me if I'm not going to finish this steak. But yeah, yeah, I'm not going to enjoy this much. And we're not having sex afterwards. <laughs> so it's, it happens, and yeah. sometimes it's a real fucking disaster. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, you're out there, and the guy is like, a, yeah, yeah. One of these guys are in these courses where they teach them to bring you down. Have you heard about that? No. Uh, I've never actually met one of these people, but I've read about it quite a lot. I've heard from people who... Okay, do you know these um, people who go to courses in um, seducing
0: women? Oh, the game. Yeah, yeah so one right. of the
1: things they teach them there is mm. a thing that is called to... Um, oh, neg them. Neg them, mm. exactly. So you kind of go and you, you mm. kind of make, you try to do. And mm. so, some gigs are like that. Mm-hmm. You're there and there's, there's like, the, they're, they're folding their arms. You know, what? also, I want to say something about folding their arms because I'm a folder of arms because I've mm. always been overweight. And I know that sometimes people do this to hide the tummy. So I'm not even taking it. You know, sometimes they fold their hands in a certain way that is like, we hate you mm. we hate you and we're not going to stop hating you and there's nothing that you're mm. going to say in that ridiculous accent of yours is going to make us hate you less mm. then what you fucked I mean I've done a whole show in mm. Kent mm. Uh, at the Royal what the fuck was I thinking at the Royal Regiment whatever it's called right. thingy some yeah. military thing A military
0: base sort of, yeah.
1: no no it wasn't a military base it was like a, the memorial Royal Regiment <laughs> thingy <laughs> in Royal Tunbridge, fucking yeah <laughs> It was 50 minutes of pain, pain. Like, and you know, if, if this was like three years ago, I don't know if it would have just come out of this alive. I was thinking, this is very unpleasant. I want this to stop. I will cut it sh- as short as I can without not meeting my contractual... <laughs> <laughs> contractual contractual requirements. Yeah, yeah. though I actually <laughs> think that these contractual requirements, yeah. everybody would be happy if they would be cut short right now, including yeah. the promoter. Yeah. Uh, but... Yeah, what mm. can you do? But, mm. you know, um, it's,
0: yeah. But it's that, that fortitude that you have after doing so many years on the circuit. It really hel- holds you in, like, in good stead for gigs like that when you've, you know that this stuff works and you know you've gone in there and done everything you can within your skill set, whatever time you've been on the circuit you've acquired. Because, yeah. sure, the more you're on the circuit, the more options you'll have in that situation. And you can stand there going, you know, what? I'm giving you everything I've got. Yeah, and I'm enjo- and I'm and enjoying the fact that you're really not even going for this. But I'm not, I'm not golding you, But I'm like, hey, look, you know, this is this is what I have got, guys. You know, yeah. you, you can really hate this, but we can get to the end of this. It's okay, and I'm still gonna, I'm not gonna walk away with uh, with you taking my ball of joy away. I'm, this is my ball of joy, and I'm taking it home. Okay, guys. But well,
1: you also know that you would need to do something to renew but You know that you need to uh, go and do a gig where you know. They like you. Mm. Or you can even look at your diary after a gig like that and you're like, I'm going to yeah. whatever. I'm going to do Andy Gleeks's gig next yeah. week. I know this is going to be great, yeah. or I'm going to do whatever downstairs of the King's Head, or I'm going to you know somewhere where you know it's your people. I, I'm doing Yes Bar in a few weeks. Are you know Yes Bar in, in Glasgow, mm-hmm. so I'm like, yeah, I know I'm going to have a great weekend. I mean, you know, it could be better or worse, or, or yeah. all sorts of things going to happen. But I know I'm going to be in Glasgow, and then I'm doing Red Rose. So I know I'm doing the Standing Glasgow, which yeah. for me is like, if I could only do the Standing Glasgow every day of my life for the rest of my gigging life, I'd be happy. Yeah. I'm like, this is my favorite place. This for me this like. Becca yeah. of comedy, a great really? atmosphere, super mm. professional. Great. So I'm, you, you, you know that you're going to have better gigs. I mean, I think it's terrible if you go somewhere, I can't remember this happening recently, where you sort of expect to have a great gig and mm. then it's terrible. But I don't think it happens anymore. Also, I think the way your toolkit is becoming bigger. Mm. So it no longer happens. I was actually thinking about this the other day. Do you remember these deaths? that we used to die in the first year, mm. where by death, I mean death, there is no coming back, like nothing in the mm. room. Nobody's coughing, nobody's chuckling. It doesn't happen like that mm. anymore. It doesn't. You will get the response out of them. You will mm. get some kind of laugh. If you don't get a laugh, you will get a groan. If you, mm. It doesn't happen that you plow through. Mm. Yeah, so I think th- this improves. I mean, mm. your skill definitely Changes Mm. and sometimes you see new acts do this kind of go through these five minutes of silence and you think, don't stop. Mm. I mean, and I think this is something that do you remember Mm. hearing that? I mean, I Mm. remember hearing that we of go out of something like that and you cry, Mm. and there's somebody in the car who's super experienced because they've already been doing it for eight months or something, Mm. and Mm. and they say, don't stop, don't ever don't quit. No, just Mm. go do that. Mm. I mean, you know, my first gig was so terrible, not the showcase of the course, which was great, of course, it's always great, but then I went, and there were three guys who were in the course with me. Not one of them is still doing comedy. Um, they took me to the mm. Lion's Den, and mm. uh, not that this Lion's Den that is now that I know is somewhere in uh, Piccadilly uh, it's or Chansfory something. Avenue. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I've never even been there. But at the time, it was um, at um, somewhere in um, near King's Cross on York's mm. Way. Uh, there was another gig going there uh, years later. Mm. They were doing. Um, Kind of a cabaret type thing, right? But that was like it was the lounge then Tyrone Atkins was running it. We paid three quid, Mm. we didn't know that it was a sin to pay for play. I mean, nobody told us, and it was dreadful. I remember it being absolutely horrendous. I was the last because basically it was just acts, and everybody was leaving. When I was there, there were like two girls in the audience, and I did my set. It was a terrible set, it was just agony. And I don't, understand, I don't really know how did I actually come to do my second gig after mm. that. Mm. Because it was quite distraught. But what I do remember, and I don't even remember where that second gig was, which is strange, because that mm. was the gig that kept me going. But right. I know that it was a better gig. I think it was probably the Comedy Arms. Yeah. Uh, I was doing it a lot in my first year. You know, it's, it's just... And then you look back and we've done, I don't know, I think I've done about 1,500 gigs. It's scary to wow. think about it. Mm. I mean, I'm relentless. I giggle up. Mm. I think at some point what happened was, also, you need to kind of keep a balance. And mm. sometimes it's hard to remind yourself. Because when new people ask, I mean, there was a, this week somebody in the Comedy Collective said, oh, I want to do another course. And I was like, listen, if it's not been going for two, three years mm. and you've done the basics and kind of a basic course, don't do another course. Just mm. keep going, keep going, mm-hmm. and then start doing, you know... Work on specific things that you need. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this gig, 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 gig thing that you don't really know how this works. So basically, what you're like is you're like an athlete. You're mm-hmm. learning how to... You're just running. You're like a car on a run. You just need to do this thing. And then you can look at it and think, oh, this happened here and this happened there. Mm-hmm. And and also people learn in a different pace and they develop different muscles
0: over time. Okay. But for you, do you think that comedy has changed you as a person? Yes, but it's really hard to say how. Right.
1: I think maybe one of the main thing is you cannot do comedy if you don't know what you look like. Mm. Not just physically. If you don't know what people think about you when they look at you for the mm. first time, when they just, you get on stage and they, you know, they decide basically mm. within the first 10 seconds if they're with you or without you. Mm-hmm. Again, is quite to dating. Then you can't do comedy. Mm. This is the, I think this is really is the main thing. You need to know, not just to, to know that you look like a cross between what's it and a banana. You need to, mm-hmm. to, I think this is something that I've learned. Mm. Uh, it's it's painful sometimes. It's also, it's rewarding, mm. but it, it means that you need to acknowledge. And again, this is not just about whether, I mean, and for women particularly, again, uh, or for people who have body image issues, for women, um, no, but, uh, everybody does, but. Mm. It's not just about if you're fat, even though it's a thing. Yeah, can you sure. think? oh, they look at me. Do they like me? Do they think I look well? Do they like my dress? Do they think I'm fat? Do they think I'm old? Um, how old do they think I look? Mm. But it's also, what kind of thing do they think I'm likely to say? Mm. What kind of type of person? do they There's a lot that they think mm. of, from this first moment. Some yeah. of it is the opposite of who you are. Mm. Some of it is, in, you know, and you need to say things. It's not just about saying things to address it, It's that I know what you're thinking kind of thing. Mm. It's not about telling them that you know what you're thinking. It's about you knowing what they're thinking. Mm. And I think this I'm getting better at. Mm. And it makes me actually feel more comfortable rather than less comfortable. Mm. I know that the main thing that they think, I now know that it's not like they're going, oh, there's a fat woman on that stage. It's not the first thing that they think to themselves. And that was a very, and they don't think that even when I don't wear a corset. I mean, Mm. you don't need to throw your tits at them for them not to think that you're fat. Right. this is not how this works mm. um, they, they could think all sorts of things and they, uh, they could acknowledge some things that you want them to know and some things you don't want them to as long as you know and as long as your comedy is written to be delivered by that person that they know they see mm. uh, you're fine yeah. you're alright but it's, it's, it's a hard and
0: interesting process so you really like the first few uh, minutes if you like are trying to show them what you're thinking and how you're thinking Rather yeah. than rather than like I know I, I might have some idea of what you may because if you're trying to prejudge what they're thinking of you, that can really destroy yourself, can it? Because it can really destroy true. your 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 whole writing, all of your writing, because because you're like I'm trying to second guess what they think, what they th- you think. You need
1: of to me. have an idea what they see. I think maybe that's right. a better b- way to put it. Okay. It's, it's not about what they think. You need to know what they see and what they might suspect. Yeah, and then some of the suspicions you are just about to confirm. And some of them you're about to dispel. You kind of need to make this decision. And of course, you don't know exactly what they're thinking. Mm. I think you do need to know what you project. Mm. And the same, you know, how sometimes you write a joke and you think, this is not a joke for me. Mm. It's a really, I hate that. I Mm. hate that. And I hate being told that. And I'm working with the director. Sometimes she says, this is a really nice joke, About go give it to
0: somebody oh. else. I'm like, no, <laughs> no.
1: And like, you can't keep this.
0: It's just no. not you. Mm. Uh, Put it in a drawer, maybe, and then come back to it. Maybe it'll fit sometimes, you.
1: Sometimes it fits you later. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, And sometimes it's just from a tiny little bit of a different... Uh, this week, I just dragged out of oblivion something that I used to say in the past. What was that? I was not a gig and there was it was Harrison's gig in the south and there was a Sophie uh, Hendrickson mm. is called she was doing some joke about when you know, you play with your baby's friends and they're saying, oh, are you, you know, And I used to have a joke like this about when you're in your 40s and you play with your babies and like how your friends used to love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're in your 30s and you would come and play with their baby and they would all go, oh, it suits you, it mm-hmm. suits you. Mm-hmm. You know, as if their bloody baby was a pair of earrings mm-hmm. or, you know, an Olympic swimmer or something. But then three weeks ago, when they saw me playing with the very same baby on his 21st birthday. (laughs) They didn't think it suited me at all. So this is a joke. I didn't tell this for two or three years. And Mm. then suddenly, because Sophie said it, and I came and said, and I was referring to that. So, Mm. you know, sometimes you do that. And then you think, actually, I like that joke. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can, you know, I could just kind of, because I don't have, you know, I remember that there was this documentary about Joan Rivers, and she had all these cards with jokes. I'm like, oh, my God, this is what I want to have when I grow up. Like, this whole room are mm-hmm. boxes with jokes and yeah. what's probably going to be called a computer. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> they, know, they have these things now, mobile phones. Because like, we're, so, oh, we're so lucky. Oh god It's <laughs> You brilliant. just need to write things I don't know how people dealt oh. with cards and things like that. I mean, oh, like, dear. I'm... But, it's great. I mean, you go on a bus <laughs> and you can write the joke in <laughs> the thing, and if you just don't so sometimes I go over these list, you know I have mm-hmm. these things, and I'm like, oh, no, no. and then you you find things. Mm-hmm. so I think there's all sorts of old jokes that yeah. um some of them the thing is that there is a constant competition in comedy between your performance and your writing. Mm. Sometimes mm. you write something, it's so fucking good. Mm. You don't yet have the ability to deliver it mm. to the fullness of its brilliance. Totally. And then you do deliver it to the less of the fullness of the brilliance. And it's somewhere. And then so- you grow up and yeah. you go and find it. Like mm. Sometimes your performance has already grown so much that mm. the joke is no longer good enough
0: for mm. you. Mm.
1: But sometimes you could just you, like now you can do it,
0: so, <laughs> so it's like good. No, I think just this, this is the joke out of the stone. Yeah, I think <laughs> what I'm
1: saying is keep the stuff. Keep yeah. the stuff even if you think it's shit. Keep mm. notes. Mm. Keep keep. I mean, okay, these are Earth things that everybody says that have a, a notebook by your bed. Now I have a notebook not by my bed but in my bed, and sometimes mm. this notebook is behind my bed because I sleep <laughs> on my side, and I think. It can't be asked <laughs> to turn around yeah. and reach you that. I remember it in the morning. Of yeah. course, I remember it in the morning. How will I not remember it in mm-hmm. the morning, bitch? You don't remember it in five minutes. You will mm-hmm. not remember it. It yeah. would not remember, write it down. Yeah. So yeah, so you learn these things. I, I think see. that's something I've learned.
0: And um, so Daphne when when is your next like? Have you got a preview coming up for the Fringe this year? Are you taking? I've the year off?
1: got no, no. I've not. I've taken last year pretty much off. I basically because I became jobless in um, April, which is a very bad month too, because that's sure. just when you need to pay for the Fringe. And I was like, okay, probably I can't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And then I it was some kind of constellation that made it possible for me to go up, and I did two shows of Begging to Differ. So Begging to Differ was in Brighton, and it was in, um, in Hastings. There's a lovely new Fringe there, and in uh, Camden. And I did two shows of it in Edinburgh, and now I will, I'm will. i taking it to Women in Comedy in Manchester mm. next, So at the end of this month, uh, 21st, 22nd, no, 22nd, 23rd of uh, October. Mm. And then there's Leicester in February. And then Brighton in, oh, in March, Glasgow in March and Brighton in May. Mm. And then uh, I do plan to bring it to Edinburgh. Mm. Things need to, to calm down a little bit in terms of work, money. You mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. know, maybe comedy will suddenly pick up and I'll start making loads of money out of it. Um, I mean, it's it's already. I think this is the second year, first year, when it, I would say that it's been a little bit of money. Yeah. Like at least you can. It's, yeah. it's, it's a more kind of tangible bit yeah. of money than before. Mm-hmm. Maybe because right now it's the only money that's. Coming, but you know, it, mm. it's, it's it is. Yeah. So. If something, I hope, that this year will work out in a way that will enable me to take it to... Edinburgh, I have until Christmas to decide, because this mm. is when I need to apply. I need a good year. Yeah, so this. you're hitting all the
0: festivals, though, that's it. I'm hitting, yeah. So where have you got any previews coming up in any of the places, uh, or just like you're just going to hit it with the festivals? You've got, you got four shows, right, uh, so...
1: I will have previews eventually, in the spring, but at the moment I'm just doing, they I have a show true. that is ready, yeah, and that I am working on it towards going to Edinburgh, I'm assuming that it is going to Edinburgh, I'm uh, I'm working on it as if it is if it will not I will do Camden again yes. it's brilliant by the way I am mm-hmm. actually enjoyed Camden so much that I'm now thinking even if I do get to do Edinburgh maybe it's worth doing a few days in Camden and then going to Edinburgh yeah. so like missing maybe the first few days or the last few days mm. uh, of Edinburgh and doing it in Camden
0: and an Edinburgh warm up for you that's it and you hit the ground running that's something for your you poster a little, you have a quote from Camden I guess so there'll be some reviewing yeah. it yeah, there too yeah
1: I yeah. had really idea. nice reviewers there this Great. year and yeah so I might, I don't know, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. I did the Camden head; they were great, they ran a great room, and, and I did one night uh, at the Phoenix, which is also brilliant. Mm. Yeah, so you can actually, you can definitely break even in Camden, you can even yeah. make a little bit of money in Camden. Mm. But previous year, I was with Just a Tonic, and I love working with Just a Tonic, mm. I'm also doing, I did last year with Just a Tonic as well, and yeah. I'm doing it again. And that was a good, I mean, you know, there was this whole thing where they rescued us from the whole disaster at uh, Cowgate Head, and Daryl was really... Decent and it gave us a really reasonable, uh, like more than reasonable um, fees for the rooms. And mm. there was, it was a really good deal, but this the, the second year they couldn't offer that a similar deal. Yeah. So I'll see what happens. I'll see what happens. I have a website, mm. Miss D. It's, it remains so their the website is called after Miss D. Mm. Miss mm-hmm. The good thing about the website that a comedian called Luke Sargent have constructed for me mm. is that it has a Page called Gig Dates. Great. So if you want to see me, you just go to this Gig Date. I mean, I know that I'm like some some kind of technology kind of leaving me <laughs> in complete oh, But you can even you can, on your phone, you can go there, go to this Gig Date thing, and you just know where I am. So you will know that tonight I'm in Kingston, yeah. somewhere. Excellent. Uh, and I just need to find out
0: where. Well, Daphne, thanks for coming on the show. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Okay,
1: that was absolutely great. Thank you so much.
0: And that was episode twenty one with Daphne Barham. I love talking to Daphne. She's so warm, friendly, very funny. Go and see her. She's got loads of dates coming up. She's doing all the fringes, as I say. You really enjoy her. And she's go and talk to her. She's lovely. The next episode we've got is episode twenty two. Now I am see a gig down in Plymouth, the B Bar. And I did it about a year ago. And I love that place. It's great fun. Really enjoyed that room. And I went back again. And this time I've been gigging way more. And I went back with more skills. I had a great time. And the headliner was Yanni Yugisolo. I had Yanni on the show. Yanni closed that gig as well. And it was just great to see what 15 years or so experience can do to a room like that. It was great. I really enjoyed watching Yanni. So I said, right. And I just wanted to speak to him about where he came from and how he got to that point. But you're going to really enjoy that one. Now, if you like this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. We're there, at The Comedy Defect. If you want to follow me, it's at Winter Fonander. If you want to come see my live startup gig dates, just go to my website, which is winterfonander.com. You can see my live gig dates there. Come see me, I'll make you laugh. If you want to donate to this podcast, go to Patreon, type in The Comedy Defect Podcast, and donate as much or as little as you want. But if you can't kick something back to us, just leave us a nice review on iTunes or Podbean because it really helps. We've had a few people, as I say, joining the Facebook group, which is The Comedy Defect Podcast. We're there on Facebook. Join the join the party. Why not? Leave a nice comment for us. Tell us which episode you like the best. But that's it for now from The Comedy Defect Podcast. We're back next week with episode 22 with Yanni Yajisolo.